Dad. I'm your interim pastor, Mike Sherritt, and we are in the middle of a series in 1 Thessalonians. This is the Apostle Paul's earliest written epistle, and we are in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. The text is provided for you in your bulletin as is an outline of the things I'm going to share with you. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Unbearable. Intolerable. This is the weight in the heart of Paul's readers in Thessalonica. They're being persecuted for their faith. It's hard. They've lost loved ones to death. Dear friends are getting sick with cancer. Their neighbor's marriage is falling apart. Their kid is being picked on at school. They're suffering economic loss through injustice. It's unbearable, it's intolerable, and Paul is saying this is not the way it's supposed to be. And Christians expect that every wrong will be made right that whatever is broken and messed up and dark and wicked and evil and wrong with this world, it will come untrue and everything will become the way it should be. The biblical word for that, a confident, certain expectation that everything will end up the way it should be, that word is hope. Notice in verse 13 that Paul contrasts two kinds of people. He says, I don't want you to grieve as others do who have no hope. Believers in the church had lost loved ones to death. They're grieving, appropriately so. There are those who lose loved ones and they grieve with no hope. So the word hope is framing our uh, text this morning. And the million dollar question is, in such a messed up world, who can make everything right? The answer 
is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has promised to make everything in the end exactly the way it should be. Think about his earthly ministry. What is Jesus doing? He is dispelling the darkness. He is bringing light and healing. He is reversing the curse wherever he goes. So he sees death, he resurrects that person. He sees hunger, he feeds the masses. He sees corruption in the government, in the religious government, he addresses it. Someone is sick, they're healed. Someone is oppressed by demons, he liberates them. Jesus Christ shows in this ministry, he has started a reversal of the fact that things are not the way they're supposed to be in this world. It is a work in progress and it isn't yet finished. When will it be finished? At Jesus' second coming. And that's the event that he's describing in our text. So Christian hope is an unshakable, certain confidence that everything will end up the way it should be because of the authority, the power, and the desire of Jesus Christ to make it so. So I just want to walk through the text and show you four things that Jesus promises to do, Jesus will put an end to in the ultimate righting of every wrong. So number one, Jesus promises to put an end to our separation from God. Verse 14, Paul frames his discussion of the second coming with these words. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so what is that? Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection is God's way of reconciling sinners to himself. That's the hope of the world. The death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, the worst problem on earth is that human beings are born with an insatiable appetite to find life on their terms rather than God's. The human's heart's disposition towards a good, holy, righteous, lovely, beautiful God is keep your grubby hands off my life. That's sin. And it's driven by a heart that is indifferent to the glory of God. That's not the way it's supposed to be. God is worthy. God is deserving of all of your honor, all of your thanks, all of your obedience, and all of your love. Beloved, it is not right that anyone should ever live for a second except to the praise of God's glory. And sin, this is kind of an overlooked fact in, in, in our modern world, sin inexorably attracts judgment. It's like gravity. If I was to drop this book a thousand times out of a thousand, it is going to fall to the ground. Because right now in our physical world, everything is subject to the laws of gravity. The laws of morality and God's economy is every sin must be punished. Wherever there's a sin, it inexorably attracts, attracts judgment. You acknowledge this already in your prayers. And so, and so where are all of your sins? Paul frames his discussion of the second coming by saying Christ died. 
Jesus Christ has taken all of your sins, not just some, all of your sins. He has removed all of your transgressions and is an absolute guarantee that God accepts that sacrifice on your behalf, God the Father raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's declaration, I really forgive sinners because if it's true of Jesus, it's true of all who trust in him. You trust in Jesus, you are united to Christ. His death to sin was your death to sin. His resurrection is your resurrection. God is putting an end through Jesus Christ to our separation from himself. This is why Paul writes in Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Secondly, hope. Jesus is going to do what he promises. This Christian hope because of his desire, his ability, and his authority. Number two, he will put an end to our separation from paradise. In verse 15, Paul says, the coming of the Lord. And specifically, verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Now, Paul is reiterating what Jesus himself taught many times over in his earthly ministry. There's a day coming when he will return to earth as judge, and he will inaugurate fully the kingdom of God. In fact, in the book of Acts, the the people standing by Jesus at his ascension, he ascends up into the clouds, and an angel says, the same way he ascended, he will return. So I will often see a cloud and go, Jesus, come on that cloud. He's coming in the same way. The Bible casts this for us in terms of a love story. Jesus, the groom, is coming for you, his bride. He can't wait to see you. Think of Jesus' words in John 14, 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. What is the greatest passion in Jesus' heart right now? He wants you with him. He is enjoying the fellowship and the presence of all who've gone before us in death. He is enjoying them. They are savoring his fellowship with him. But it isn't right that we all aren't in the presence of Jesus in paradise. That is Christ's passion. He wants you with him. And this event is saying Jesus is bringing paradise to the earth. Now, Paul uses a technical term to describe the coming of Jesus. It's parousia, parousia. His readers would understand that term from their own culture. A parousia, in terms of the religious cults, referred to a hidden divinity who makes his presence felt by a revelation of his power. But in politics, a parousia referred to a dignitary, a special important person in government who came to town. And it was incumbent upon that city to welcome that dignitary with fanfare, with trumpets, with loud shouts. And they knew that the dignitary had every right to come to that city, in this case Thessalonica, with the expectation that everyone in that city was honoring that dignitary properly. Paul hijacks the word, and he says, oh, there is a coming of the dignitary par excellence, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes to embrace you into his bosom, to lavish his love upon you, to show you himself, he will be honored 
as King of kings and Lord of lords, and you will be glorified in him. My point is, hope is the certainty that Jesus finishes what he starts. He's going to finish what he starts. So you order something off of Amazon tomorrow, and they say expect shipment on Wednesday. It's amazing how fast they get stuff to you. It's going to come in three boxes. Now, how are the boxes labeled? One of three, two of three, three of three. When three of three lands on your front doorstep, what do you know? The whole package is here. This is like your Christian faith. You have received, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have received box one. Forgiveness, a new heart, absolute cleansing of your sins, adoption into God's family as brothers and sisters. You have received box one. You're still waiting for box two and three. What is box two? It's the resurrection of your body. There's only one body that's been resurrected in history. The first fruits, the final resurrection, that's Jesus' body. Box two is a resurrection. What's box three? It's enjoyment of the presence of God and paradise restored on the new heavens and the new earth in your resurrected body. That's box three. This is why Peter writes in 2 Peter uh, 3.13, according to his promise, we are looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Jesus has started it. He's going to finish it. So you and I live in the already but not yet. You've already experienced resurrection. The moment you become a believer, the Holy Spirit has called life to come in you. You've gone from death to life, darkness to light, unbelief to belief. You've experienced spiritual resurrection, but your body has not been raised from the dead yet. At least I don't think so, just looking at you. So the best is yet to come. So Christianity is good, better, best. What you have now, in union with Jesus, a new heart, is good. Our loved ones who have died, both my parents, are with Jesus in glory, better. When Jesus comes again and brings paradise to earth and we enjoy one another without sin, sorrow, sickness, sadness, or the prospect of death, that's the best. Beloved, the best is yet to come. You weren't built for life outside of paradise. You weren't built for it. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's so good that Paul writes this about our future glorious state in 1 Corinthians 2.9. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. It's unspeakably so good, it's indescribable. That's how good it is. The manifestation of the kingdom of God, the presence of God, pure love, pure light, pure beauty, pure happiness, pure rest, pure joy, no tears, no sorrow, no sickness, no sadness, no death, no wherefore, no strife. And there is a little bit more than that, actually. Because in this life, we labor under the fact that bad people seem to get away with it. There is injustice, there's murder, there's thieves, there's persecution. And we don't see in this life an ultimate vindication of their wrong. It's 
not the way it's supposed to be, people doing this to other human beings. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Particularly those who suffer because they belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is coming to do away and to repay all that injustice. And that return is unmistakable. Look at verse 16. Can't miss it. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. I'll say more about that in some subsequent sermons. But the point, beloved, is a rotting evil world is going to be replaced with endless peace and joy and love and goodness. And best of all, verse 17, we will always be with the Lord. That's the way it's supposed to be. Think about this. You were built for the presence of God. That's what it means to be human, to enjoy, see, hear, be fully satisfied in the presence of God. Most of us woke up this morning very content without the presence of God. That's not the way it's supposed to be. So here's a question. There's some, if, like me, you, find it easy to be satisfied without the presence of God, right? If, if I was in my right mind, I would ache that I'm not in the presence of God. Ache. I don't ache that way. You, like me, have found ways to dull that pain. You have found ways to silence your conscience that says you're built for God's presence. Why are you so satisfied with so little the presence of God? What is it? It must be repented of. Some of you are finding it in maybe religion, a political cause, substance, a relationship, your work. There's a million ways we take good things and let them substitute for the most wonderful thing in the world, a sense of the presence of God. Beloved, in America, we, most of us are afforded the ability through conspicuous consumption to get a lot of paradise right here and now. I, I fear for my soul that I would cave into that. I really do. That I would crave more what I was built for. Let's move to point three, hope. Jesus promises to finish what he started. He has the authority, he has the power, he has the desire. He's the only man on earth who ever claimed to set everything right. If he does, that's, it's certainly worth exploring a man's teaching who says, I'm gonna make everything right. And again, his resurrection proves it. He, uh, he, he undoes the problem of separation from our loved ones. I'm back to verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, Paul is reiterating Jesus' own teaching, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. What's the problem in Thessalonica? Paul got word that some in the church are very concerned, they're feeling hopeless, that their loved ones who've died are going to miss out because they perished in their bodies before the second coming. Paul didn't teach that. Someone has extrapolated an erroneous teaching that, that there are believers there going, oh no, why couldn't my loved ones stay alive until Jesus came? 
they're f- afraid they're, they're missing out. And Paul goes, oh no, they're just sleeping. That's the new word, the Christian word for death. How appropriate. Sleep is followed by awakening like death is followed by resurrection. You know, the word cemetery means a sleeping place. Those bodies are merely sleeping. What wrong will be righted when Jesus comes again? He is going to reunite us with our loved ones. If you've lost a loved one, you know this awkward, this terrifying, this tormented sense of, I wasn't built to be ripped away from them. That's not the way it's supposed to be, to be ripped away from our loved ones. No. This is why the Lord Jesus, every time he meets a funeral in his ministry, he stops it. Small detail, he touches the buyer. Priests couldn't do that. He does because he has authority over death in the grave and he'll prove it in his resurrection. He touches the buyer. He raises the dead person and does what? Gives them back to their family. That's where they belong. That's the way it's supposed to be. The fact, beloved, that death is in this world is not the way it's supposed to be and that enemy will be destroyed. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as an Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, that's the event Paul's referring to here, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. This event signals the end of earth history when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he puts every enemy under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Only Jesus can do it. He has the desire. He has the power. He has the authority. It's to get you back in his presence forever. Before I move on to the last point, I want to acknowledge what some of you are probably thinking about. You have lost dear friends, you have lost loved ones, and it was not at all clear to you that they died in faith. And you can't help but wonder and anguish over where are these loved ones. That's an experience for many of us. My advice is to do this. Look to God as exceedingly merciful, exceedingly kind, exceedingly just, and say, Lord, I have to trust those people into your great hands. I have to entrust them to you. You, Lord, will do what is right. What is hope? Jesus will finish what he promised to do. This world is not the way things are. He is going to put things right. The last thing he'll undo is the separation from our bodies. So, I got an email this morning that said, attention, attention, Mike, if Jesus doesn't come anytime in the next hundred years, you're going to die. I'm going to perish physically. No man knows his time. At some point, I'm going to die if Jesus... Jesus hasn't returned. That's not the way it's supposed to be. You were not built to die. Your body was not built by God to decay. It's going to die because of sin. And Jesus Christ is here to rescue our bodies from ultimate decay. 
and it was into his sinless body. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He was purchasing for you, beloved, purchasing by removing your sin, purchasing for you an indestructible, sinless body, and he proved it through his resurrection. He proved it through his resurrection. That's the Christian hope. He will raise your body up on the last day. That body will never perish. It is never going to cry. It's never going to sorrow. It's never going to sing, sin. <sighs> That's the way it's supposed to be. And so what Paul is really referring to here is he's echoing the words of Jesus, who's actually echoing the words of Daniel 12, when Jesus says in John 5, 28, don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Paul's alluded to his voice in our text. And will come out those who've done good to a resurrection of life, those who've done evil to a resurrection of judgment. And here is Paul's stress on that voice. Verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are, who are alive and left will be caught to meet them in the air. Do you see the sequence? Right now, those who preceded us in death are with Jesus in their spirits. Their bodies are somewhere, decaying somewhere, but they are with Jesus in their souls, enjoying paradise, right? Today you'll be with them in paradise, Jesus said to the thief. They're enjoying the presence of Jesus. When Jesus comes again, they are coming with him. And the shout comes, and all the tombs open the evil to a resurrection of judgment, and those who are with Jesus, their bodies are raised, and in an instant, those spirits and bodies are joined together, and they have instantaneously, in that moment, somehow, resurrection bodies. And we who are alive are caught up to meet them in the air, and somewhere between here and there, your body will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye into a resurrection body. And then Jesus is saying, let's go, let's claim it, let's get back to the earth. Heaven comes to earth. Paradise is coming down. The city of God is coming to earth. Somehow in there, he's going to destroy this earth and scour it and whatever. I, I'm not exactly sure what that all is going to look like, but we are destined to have paradise on the earth in resurrected bodies. Finally, Look at Paul's encouragement, a practical conclusion, verse 18. Therefore, given everything I've said, therefore, encourage one another with these words. What is he saying? Christian hope blossoms in a community of encouragement. Christian hope needs other Christians. Sometimes my hope is faint, burns dimly, and I have a wife walking with me through life who has a much brighter hope than I do. It's, what a gift. I tend to kind of be like this. She's, but if she's down, may the Lord have my heart filled with hope. So, even though you may trust robustly in, this, in the work of Jesus Christ for you, we can sometimes let the darkness overwhelm us. We can let Satan lie to us. We can let our hearts get the better of us. We need each other to foster hope. 
So feel free to come in weakness to a brother, a sister, someone in your small group, a pastor, an elder, a deacon, someone on staff, and just say, gosh, I, I know I should have stronger hope. I don't. Let's unpack this. Let's work on this. Oh, Trinity, you see, when you are a culture of encouragement, the surrounding folks in our city, they're going to smell the aroma of hope, and they're going to want to know about it. So may God give us that. I'm going to pray, as I pray now, I'm going to pray a couple of verses that appear in 2 Thessalonians, because it's one of Paul's prayers, and it's in light of the fact that Jesus is coming. So let's pray, and I'll just read that prayer to you. To this end also, we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.